So, uh, we've been progressing slowly but surely uh, through the book of Romans, um, quite slowly at points, and we've reached uh, chapters 9 to 11 in the last few weeks. Uh, Chapters 9 to 11 of Romans, universally regarded as difficult, often regarded as irrelevant. Um, I've said before that I've uh, heard and indeed organised a couple of series preaching in Romans which have skipped straight from the end of chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 12, uh, partly because it's hard to find people who are willing to preach chapters 9 through 11, and partly because in some ways they seem to follow logically from one another. Well, I've been arguing that that won't do, and I hope you, if you've been here, have been following me. I think that these chapters are actually central, central to the book of Romans. They are all about Israel, all about the Old Testament people of God. And as Paul spends these three chapters really focusing on Israel, he's bringing into the foreground a concern that has been there throughout the letter of Romans and will continue to be there afterwards. For example, this is chapter 1, verse 16, which is usually thought to be the sort of theme sentence for the whole book. Paul Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Now, we uh, get quite excited about the first bit. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But for Paul, that last bit, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, is hugely important. And he's already given us two reasons, I think, uh, that we've seen for this to matter to him. Firstly, he's, he's personally deeply concerned about his own people, about the Jews. And if you read uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, you hear that Paul has unceasing anguish in his heart for them. He even goes so far as to say that if it were possible, he himself would be cut off from Christ if they could be saved. He knows that isn't possible, but he sort of hypothesises about it. But as well as his personal concern, he has a really deep theological concern. It matters to Paul, the fate of Israel, because God made promises to Israel The Old Testament is full of them. And so in chapter 9, verse 6, he feels that he has to say, it is not as though God's word had failed. Because you can see where the inference is coming from. God made promises to Israel. Israel doesn't appear to have been saved. Has God's word therefore failed? Uh, We're going to see some other reasons, probably, before we get to the end of Romans 11, why this is important for Paul. But there's two to go on with. So, so far we've mainly been answering that question. Has God been unfaithful to Israel? Have his promises failed? And we've basically seen that unsurprisingly the answer is no. If I'd said anything else you'd be worried, right? No, God hasn't broken his promises. Uh, They were never actually promises that all of Israel would be saved. You get that in the beginning of chapter 9. No, God hasn't broken his promises. He has shown free mercy, which he is perfectly entitled to do as the potter who stands above the clay. And no, God hasn't broken his promises. He is still driving forward his great big plan, which always was that he would show mercy to both Jews and Gentiles and be glorified in the whole earth. So God has not been unfaithful. He has been faithful. None of his promises have failed. So by the time we get to chapter 9, verse 30, the question that Paul envisages us having on our minds is this. Okay, Paul, if all of that is true, 
What has happened? Because we look around our churches, we, I'm putting myself here in the pose of a first century Gentile Christian, we look around our churches and we don't see many Jewish people. And actually, we know for a fact that the leaders of Israel have universally, or nearly universally, rejected their Messiah. So what has happened? Has something gone wrong? Well, Paul's answer is, in a way, that something has gone wrong. Not in God's plan, which is still going forwards, but in the hearts of God's people. And it is basically just one answer, which he's going to look at from different angles. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't want Jesus. And that was the problem. Well, why not? Why did they not want Jesus? And uh, I just want to make two big points. Why did they not want Jesus? Firstly, because they were pursuing the law by works and not by faith. And secondly, because they chased their own righteousness and not God's. Now, I need to add uh, the same qualifications as I added last week. This is not Paul's final word on Israel. He actually has a lot more to say and the outlook gets better for Israel as we move through Romans 9 to 11 because it's frankly not great at this stage. So we need to bear that in mind and we need to bear in mind and this is a slight spoiler but hey, you can read ahead. The Bible's been available in public domain for ages. Uh, Paul is very clear that this is not all Israel. In fact, he himself is an example of a leading Jew who believes in Jesus as the Messiah. So he's very clear this is not everyone, but Israel as a whole has not embraced their Messiah as they might have been expected to. Why not? Well, firstly, because they pursued the law by works and not by faith. This is chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. What shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Paul starts off with this uh, initially fairly absurd uh, situation. The Gentiles, who weren't even looking for righteousness, weren't even looking for a right relationship with the creator God of the universe, suddenly found one plonked down on their doorsteps. Meanwhile, Israel, who in their recent history had been scrambling desperately after righteousness and had put a great deal of effort into seeking it, had not found it. Literally, Israel had pursued a law of righteousness. It was a good law, had good rules, and they had chased it with all their might. But they had not caught up with righteousness. The image uh, that Paul is using is that of, of a race. If you imagine a racetrack, and uh, essentially there are two characters on this racetrack uh, having a race. Um, there are the, the Gentiles, uh, who are frankly dawdling at the side of the racetrack, not really running, a bit too lazy. Uh, 
It's actually as if they don't even know which direction they're meant to be going in. They're wandering at random uh, across the racetrack. And then there is Israel, running, determined, eyes fixed on the finish line. Run, run, run. And then Paul says, Israel tripped up. There was a stumbling stone. They tripped up. And the Gentiles found righteousness instead of them. The weird thing is that this stumbling stone on the racetrack is a stone that God himself had put there. And Paul uses a, a sort of blended quotation of Isaiah 28.16 and uh, Isaiah 8.14 to talk about the stone. Now, in chapter 8 of Isaiah, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is himself the stone. And so he is saying, Paul is saying, whilst chasing after righteousness, whilst chasing after a right relationship with God, Israel tripped over God himself. Paul is saying, God has done something in Zion, in Jerusalem, which can either be trusted in and stood firmly upon, or it can be tripped over and it will cast you to the ground. And for Paul... That stone is Christ. A lot like the people of Isaiah's day, and if you go back and read the prophecy of Isaiah, you'll see that this theme comes up again and again and again. Paul's contemporaries are trying to do their way into righteousness when all they need to do is rest on the stone that God has established, which is Christ. You can see the difference. One is faith, I will stop and trust here. And one is works, I'm going to complete this law if it kills me, which it will. They pursued the law by works and not faith. But also they chased after, what they were chasing after in this racetrack was their own righteousness and not God's. Paul says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Just a reminder again that this is not a kind of academic exercise for Paul. This is real people he's talking about, and he cares about them. I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, that is their own righteousness... They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law. Uh, Christ is the end of the law, let's put it like that. <coughs> so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Sorry, I don't really like changing the translation in mid-flow, but it really does say end and not culmination. Now, here's the thing. Israel is really trying. They are genuinely devout. Uh, we're often in the habit, I think, of writing off religious people as hypocrites. Paul doesn't say that they are hypocrites. <coughs> they have zeal, real zeal. They really want to be right with God. But they don't know how it is done. They don't know that God offers righteousness freely in the Lord Jesus. 
This is the righteousness that Paul has been talking about all the way through Romans, from chapter 3, verse 21, I want to say, correct? Righteousness that comes apart from the law, although the law and the prophets always pointed forwards to it. That righteousness is on offer freely. But that is God's righteousness. And ignorance of that offer, Israel of Paul's day are on the whole trying to establish their own righteousness. It's like this. God comes along and says, I will give you all of this. And they say, I will not take it from you. I will get it myself. I am... This is going on the internet, but what the heck, who cares? Um, I have very generous uh, in-laws. They're they're fantastic. Um, They give us a lot of stuff. Um, And there is a bit of me, a big bit of me, that wants to say, I don't need your stuff. I can do this by myself. This is patently untrue. I cannot do this by myself. But there is a part of me that is proud and that wants this to be my own achievement. I want to have got the money to keep my family. I want to have bought the house. (laughs) I want to have have done all the DIY. And if you'd seen what I've done uh, with a hacksaw in our kitchen, then you would realise that's a very bad idea. But it is pride. I want it to be my achievement. And Paul is saying the majority of his contemporaries have not accepted God's offer of righteousness. They have carried on trying to build up their own stock. They want to establish their own righteousness. And they're using the law to do it. So they're using the Old Testament law as a guide to what it looks like to be righteous. And they're saying, if I keep it and keep it and keep it, surely my stock of righteousness goes up. Of course, the flip side of that is, every time I fail to keep it, presumably my stock goes down a little bit. But if I can work really hard, if I can keep running the race. And then Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Christ is the end. Now, that's a, excuse me, a little bit of Greek. Christ is the telos of the law. Christ is the end or the goal, and that's why the NIV picks culmination of the law. Culmination, I think, not a happy choice. End or goal, much better. Because what he's saying is this. The law always was meant to get us to this point of trusting Christ. And after that, it is of no further use to us in the sense of making us righteous. It's useful for lots of other things. But not in the sense of making us righteous. It is designed to get us to Christ. And when we get to Christ, everyone who believes in him is righteous by God's gift, with God's righteousness, not a righteousness that belongs to me. If we, uh, if we were to go back to the racetrack, um, it's, it's as if, it's as if we're, we're still running the race, and God has said, the race is over. I've, decide, I've decided that you've won. And Israel says, going to keep running, going to keep running, I can still see the finish line, I'm going to make it, I'm going to get there. And God is saying, it's done. It's achieved already. Even for those who never ran in the first place.
big point that Paul wants us to get here is that it is not some abstract theological problem that has tripped Israel up. It is not that they didn't get something massive about God, although in a way it is. It is that they did not like Jesus Christ. They did not like the fact that God had established his righteousness, that God had set his stone in Zion, and that they had to either stand on that and trust in it or lose out. It's all about Jesus. Paul is saying it always was all about Jesus, all the way through the Old Testament until this point. And to miss that is to miss everything. To stumble at that is to stumble to your own destruction. And aside about the law, how are we to understand the role of the law? Well, in Romans, the law is definitely described as good. It is God's law. It is good. 7, 12, lots of other places. It will not, however, ever make you righteous. That's basically the whole of chapters 3 to 8. It is completely powerless against sin. That's chapter 7. It would have been wonderful if Israel had pursued it in faith because it would always have pointed them beyond itself towards what they needed, which was the coming Redeemer. But insofar as they pursued it as an end in itself, as a way to achieve a self-made righteousness, it was and is destructive. That should um, inform our reading of the Old Testament. Don't have time to go into that. That would be a, a sort of seminar series in and of itself. Now, um, those are my two big points, okay? They chased... Or what were my two big points? They chased the law as if it was by works and not faith. And they chased their own righteousness rather than accepting God's. And I guess those are two basic ways of saying they failed to trust in Jesus. Because look... Faith, in and of itself, is not better than works. It's not better to believe than to do. It's only better if you believe in Jesus, because he is the stone that God has set in Zion. And uh, your own righteousness is not better than God's, except it is not. Let me try that again. God's righteousness is only given at all in Jesus. So the only way you can avoid trying to establish your own righteousness and just trusting in God's righteousness is by believing in Christ. It is all about him. And that is what has happened to Israel in Paul's day. The Messiah came, and they wanted the old way. Jesus said, nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. This is what he was talking about. Now, um, after that relatively, I hope, clear part of Scripture, um, slightly obviously befuddled and confused by my waffling around it, we get a bit which is hard. It is hard. It, this is Paul following up his points with uh, a selection of... Um, uh, what am I trying to say? Slightly obscure, perhaps, 
uh, scriptural references. He is using the Old Testament because he is talking particularly at this stage to Jews and wanting to show that this was always what was going on in the Old Testament. Um, But I will be honest, any conclusions that I draw from this section of Romans you should consider to be um, tenuous. Is that all right? So, look, take away the bit that I've just said. I believe and I'm certain that that is God's word for you. Trust in Jesus and nothing else. I'm I'm pretty much dead certain on that. This bit is a bit more fuzzy, okay? So I'll I'll also be briefer. Now, the two big quotes are these. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law, and he writes, the person who does these things will live by them i.e. do it and you will live. That is a quote from Leviticus 18.5. Leviticus 18 is the beginning of the holiness code in Leviticus, so it's a section of how to remain holy in the place where you're going. And the, excuse me, the emphasis in the surrounding verses is don't be like the Egyptians, the people you've just come out of, and don't be like the Canaanites, the place you're just going into. You belong to Yahweh, your God. Be holy as he is holy. And that phrase, be holy as I am holy, comes up over and over again, and that's why it's called the Holiness Code. It doesn't have a, like, a heading on it saying, here follows the Holiness Code. Uh, the next little quote is from Deuteronomy 30, 12-14, but with pretty heavily interspersed with Paul's commentary. He writes, But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, commentary that is to bring Christ down, Or, who will descend into the deep, commentary, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? Back to the quotation. The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart, commentary, that is, the message concerning faith, which we proclaim. What is going on here? There's an initially tempting, but I think very dangerous route to go down. We could say, Paul is saying that Leviticus 18 contradicts Deuteronomy 30, Uh, which is problematic because they're both Moses. So Moses is contradicting Moses, and um, therefore uh, we have to pick which bit of Moses we're going to go with, and Paul recommends that we go with the Deuteronomy 30 bit of Moses because it's more amenable to the message of justification by faith. Um, Don't go there. That's rubbish. So when you look at them in context, both passages are actually saying pretty much the same thing. They both say... You're a people who have been saved by God. You're a people who have been hugely privileged, named after the Lord your God, given his law, which is in itself an immense privilege, and you can and you should keep it. Both passages are saying, it's not too hard for you, it's not too difficult, you know what it is, you can and you should keep it. And if you do, that will be life to you. So both passages are saying the same thing. You're going to have to trust me on that, or alternatively, if you're wiser than to trust me, you can go away and read them both uh, in context, and I, I think that's what you'll find out. So how can Paul pit them against one another? How can one be the righteousness that comes from the law, and the other one be the righteousness that is by faith? Well, there's a little clue at the beginning of the Deuteronomy quotation. The righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart. Now, this is obscure. Do not say in your heart, that is not a quote from Deuteronomy 30. That is a quote from Deuteronomy 9. And in Deuteronomy 9, 
What Moses is saying to the Israelites is, when you get into the land, do not say in your heart, I have been given this land because I am more righteous than the people who are already in the land. It is not that. It is because those people were wicked that they have been cast out of the land. I.e., it is pure grace, as far as you are concerned, that you have been given this land. So even in the beginning of his quotations, Paul is hinting that you should not be relying on any sort of righteousness that you have built up yourself, only on what God has given you by grace. And Paul sort of uses that to put a spin on the Deuteronomy quotation and to make it not so much about the law being near you and easy for you to obey as being about the promise being near you the apostolic preaching of the gospel being near you. So he picks that up and he runs with it. Now, the point I want to make is that, in my mind, what we're dealing with here is not so much two texts that say different things, but two ways of reading the Old Testament. Paul is saying, you can read the Old Testament and easily draw out of it if you want to, the principle that, If you do the right things, you will be okay, and God will be pleased with you. But, Paul says, the way you should read the Old Testament is to see that everything was always given by grace to Israel. It always was, and it still is. Why should you pick the one reading rather than the other? The answer for Paul is simply that God has laid a stone in Zion. He has done it. Jesus has come. It cannot possibly be right to read the Old Testament as if it described a way of earning your own righteousness because God has given righteousness to everyone who asks for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, good, a few nods. That's that's good. The upshot of all of this, and I'm drawing to my close because I'm well over time, is a return to Isaiah's stone in verses 9 to 11. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your hearts that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Notice, by the way, both go together. Paul doesn't have any idea of somebody who believes in their heart but doesn't say anything publicly. That would just be a very odd thing for him. Anyway, that's by the by. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And that's the quote from the end of the Isaiah quote about the stone that's been laid in Zion that he's picking up on again. So he is saying, this has been done. Everyone who believes in him, in Jesus, who is the stone that God has laid in Zion, will be saved. That will happen. And then he just draws this massive levelling conclusion from it. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For, and a final Old Testament quotation from Joel 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now it's pretty clear that by this point in his argument, when Paul says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, he means, as he often does in his letters, the Lord Jesus. Everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Now, you can bracket all of that last bit out if you like. I don't mind. I'm not 100% sure it's right anyway. But I think it is. But this is what I'm sure of. 
Paul says, what has happened with Israel in my day is that they wanted to be righteous, but they didn't want that righteousness to come by grace, through faith. They didn't want it to be founded on what God had done in Jesus Christ. They wanted something they could call their own. They wanted something where they could say, this is what I did for it. Now, Paul is going to have a lot to say about how we should think about Israel in the here and now, in the next chapter and a half. But I just want to turn this more towards ourselves. How tempting is it to want our own righteousness? To want something that I can point to and say, because I did this, God is pleased with me. Did you notice that um, Paul said that they failed to submit to God's righteousness? 10 verse 3. They did not submit to God's righteousness. That's a funny thing. One doesn't normally submit to a gift. But in this case, this gift, this gift completely breaks us down. Strips away from us everything that we might think gives us value, gives us worth, gives us a right to stand before God, takes all of that away, leaves us for a moment naked in the dark, and then says, Jesus has done it all. Be clothed in his righteousness as a gift. It's a terrifying moment to be exposed like that. And maybe that is why we want to chase our own righteousness. Maybe that is why we would rather keep running after elusive righteousness that frankly is like, you know, the little rabbit thing at the greyhound track that is always just zipping ahead of us. You can't catch it. But we would rather be chasing that than say, yes, I cannot do it. But Jesus has done it all for me and I accept what he has done. Brothers and sisters, let's not do that. Let's pray.